Hey, what's up? This is Lamar. You're listening to the Autism Pastor podcast. In this episode, we jump into it's a quick summary of my new book, Disability and the Church, A Vision for Diversity and Inclusion. This is actually a summary of chapter seven uh, based on our book club of the book Disability in the Church. So again, this is uh, chapter seven of Disability in the Church, a version, a vision for diversity and inclusion in joy. All right, welcome back to Disability in the Church, a vision for diversity and inclusion book club. Uh, I'm your host, Lamar Hardwick. And uh, let me first start off by saying um my apologies to those who had been a part of the uh, weekly book club. Um, as many of you know, I have been undergoing treatment for stage three colorectal cancer. And part of the uh, process of that, even though I have finished with um, my chemotherapy, uh, is that um, there is some nerve damage that is done because of the chemotherapy uh, and while I finished up um, last month on April 8th, it has presented uh, some challenges um, because of the chemotherapy. Uh, and most who have gone through uh, any kind of uh, cancer treatment know that's pretty much par for the course. And so uh, what ended up happening is I am still experiencing uh, some pretty significant pain uh, known as neuropathy, uh, or damage to the nerves. Uh, and that tends to uh, present in my hands and feet, although my hands are, uh, much better than my feet. Um, but as far as, uh, the pain is pretty significant. And on the day that I had to cancel our last session, um, it was just something that I could not, um, uh, handle that day. Um, good news is I do have medication for it, uh, but that medication makes me extremely drowsy. And so the choices were um, try to get through the book club live uh, with all those of you had signed up uh, while being in pain or take the medication uh, and probably uh, not be able to make it through the entire session because of the way that the medication makes me drowsy. So uh, I had to make the decision to cancel, but as promised, um, I am going to continue um, by just recording the sessions and my thoughts on the book for you to listen to uh, here on the Autism Pastor Podcast. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, uh, instead of doing two chapters at a time, uh, in order to wrap up uh, this first season of the Autism Pastor Podcast, I'm going to... Um, just work through chapter seven. Uh, there'll be another episode on chapter eight. And then I'm working on a bonus episode that will close out uh, the first season of the Autism Passer podcast. So, hey, if you have the book, uh, go ahead and grab it, uh, whether it's a physical copy or on your Kindle or e-reader. Uh, if you do not have the book, it is available where uh, books are sold, anywhere books are sold. Um, and so most people I know have gone to Amazon or you can get it through my publisher at InterVarsity Press. Um, but if you have your book, go ahead and grab. We're going to jump into chapter seven where we left off. Uh, and chapter seven is building a leadership coaster. So here's here's what I want to say. 
Um, this is probably uh, one of my most favorite chapters to write about um, because I say this right here on page um, page 142, the beginning of the chapter, uh, in the second paragraph. Um, I say this, I have already stated this in chapter five, but it's worth repeating. Nothing happens in a local church that is not important to the pastor and leaders of the church. So over the past, I would say three, four years, I have been, uh, blessed to really, um, get the message out, um, to travel and speak at, uh, some various disability and special needs conferences, um, some that I do every year, which is great because I get to see some of the same people who are doing uh, significant work in this field. One of the things that I began to notice was that uh, as I would share uh, my thoughts, many of those thoughts that ended up being in this book, uh, I would share in workshops. Um, and then uh, in between uh, breakout sessions and at lunch, I would sit at my table um, where I would uh, be selling my first book, I Am Strong. And I would get so many people that would come um, to my table and to my colleagues' tables. What I began to notice was is that there were so many great people uh, who were fired up, enthusiastic about making their church more disability inclusive. But one of the things that I noticed was that there were uh, hardly ever any uh, lead pastors or um, executive pastors or those who were uh, in positions to make real uh, decisions about changes in the local church. And so um, what I began to discover, discover was that many of these people would go back with great ideas, uh, great insight, uh, great encouragement and enthusiasm, uh, but they didn't quite have the support that they needed to make some of the things that they learned uh, to go in their church, to implement those things in their church. And because I'm a pastor, I realized that there's a significant challenge that we have to address when it comes to becoming uh, more disability inclusive in our churches. And that is, uh, I know this as a pastor, I know this instinctively, that almost nothing happens in the church um, that is not important to the pastor and the leaders of the church. So however church is organized, whether that is um, elders and pastors, however your church, whether it's a denominational church, not a denominational church, there's some sort of structure um, of leadership. And uh, it is typical of most churches that um, anything that you experience at your local church, you experience because it is probably a high priority. Uh, to the pastor and the leaders of that church. Now, with that being said, uh, that doesn't mean that the persons who were attending the conference uh, that I met weren't leaders. But when I talk about uh, the pastor and the leaders, we're talking about those who have a significant influence on the budget, on programming, and the overall mission, vision, and values of the local church. So those things uh, tend to be uh, left in the hands of sort of your upper tier of leadership when whatever your church structure looks like. Uh, and so it becomes extremely difficult to get things done if those persons on board are not on board. So one of the reasons why I wrote the book in the way that I did was because I was uh, adamant on trying to make it um, something that would interest pastors uh, by giving a lot of biblical theological foundation. 
Uh, whether you agree or disagree, um, it's certainly intriguing information. Um, ways to look at the scriptures that perhaps you've never looked at the scriptures before. So I wanted pastors uh, and even academics and scholars to be interested in the work, but also um, to put it in the hands of the people who I was meeting at these conferences so that they can be uh, able to access the thoughts uh, of not just myself, but many other disability theologians uh, and advocates so that they could have uh, intelligent and meaningful conversations that would uh, spark interest for their pastors and their leaders on this subject. Uh, years ago, many of you know this, I was a hospice chaplain for many years. Um, and so I, um, as a part of the process of uh, being a hospice chaplain, I would have to do what's called spiritual care assessments. Uh, and in a lot of ways, a lot of the information that I have about uh, in the book about developing spiritual uh, care plans for families with disabilities is based on my experience as a chaplain. Well, there's one particular story where I had to do an assessment uh, of a family, an elderly couple. Um, the wife had end stage breast cancer. And as a part of my job, I would uh, meet several pastors in the area, in the county, because I would develop partnerships with them in the local church to make sure that uh, if I did have a patient that belonged to a local church, that I would be able to work with their pastors uh, and leaders of the church to provide care for them. So on this particular occasion, I visited uh, this family, uh, elderly gentleman and his wife. And one of the questions as a part of the spiritual care assessment is I had to ask, uh, what were their spiritual care resources that they belong to a faith community or a church, uh, that I could connect with. And so I asked the older gentleman, uh, what was the name of the church? Did you have a church home, uh, that you attended? And he shared the name of the church with me. And it just so happened to be a pastor that I knew, uh, that I had developed a relationship with uh, over my years of serving that area. And so I immediately said, oh, you're a member of John Martin's church. Uh, and the early gentleman, he was probably in his late 80s. Um, he said this, looked me in my eye without flinching. He said, young man, John Martin is a member of my church. <laughs> and so uh, I kind of chuckled internally. Um, but as I drove away, I understood um, the wisdom that this elderly gentleman had just shared with me. And that is this, um, that while most things that happen in the church happen because it's important to the pastor and the leaders in a lot of, and in a lot of ways, um, the church, uh, depending on their structure, uh, vote in or hire or whatever their process is, they place the pastor and the leaders, uh, in a position to make, uh, decisions for the church about what's important. But what this elderly gentleman taught me was, is that regardless of um, who the pastor and the leaders of the church are, regardless of the process that put them in that leadership position, the church belongs to the people. Uh, and so it was sort of his funny way of saying that, you know, pastors come and go. Um, but I've been at this church uh, for a very long time and so have many of the other congregants. And so uh, the church is the people. The church is not the leader. So. I share that not because uh, I think it is important to disregard um, what the leaders and the pastors of the church say, but the reality is, is that uh, in order for this to get done, it's going to take the people um, to uh, be adamant 
that their leaders uh, and their pastor uh, have some level of involvement, acknowledgement, um, but also um, a great level of support for helping the church to become more disability inclusive. And so that takes on uh, the question, and I say this on page 143, one of the best ways to measure an organization's commitment to diversity is to observe who it allows to lead. Uh, and that's so important because as we talk about what we need in order for our churches to become more disability inclusive, we know that it happens because it's important to the pastor and the leaders. Um, but one of the ways to almost ensure that that uh, becomes a priority is to look at whether or not we have any persons with disabilities uh, and or their family members in positions of real leadership in the church that can help make it a priority of the church. And so that's um, really the, the gist of uh, chapter seven. It is to help us to understand the importance of having persons with disabilities uh, or their family members or caregivers in positions of leadership. Here's another quote from page 145 um, towards the bottom of the page there. Creating a more disability inclusive church will require creating a path for disabled persons to have real leadership. Without their voice, the church will always struggle to fill the void left by the lack of disabled people in our faith communities. If, if you think about how we have gotten to the place where it is so difficult to make our churches more disability inclusive. You have to wrestle with the fact that many of our churches, uh, particularly in the West, I'll talk about that because that's where my research uh, is mostly founded. Uh, many of our churches uh, are constructed in very similar ways because they were conceived of um, and thought about by a certain set of minds who are, uh, for the most part, all very similar to one another. And so you can look at even the construction of the Western church and how we do church, how we do discipleship, how we do groups, however, you, uh, whatever our methods or models uh, your church uses or the methods and models that have been used throughout the decades in the Western church. Uh, the reality is, is that most of what we do in the church is because you've had the same set of minds um, conceptualizing what church should look like in our culture from decade to decade. Here's what we know is that most of those voices were not voices of the disabled. How do we know that? Because that's where we see the glaring gaps between um, our churches being able to be disability inclusive and our churches uh, not being very disability inclusive. The reality is, is that when there are no voices of disabled people who are helping shape what church should look like, uh, it's no wonder why we have uh, such a difficult time making our churches inclusive because uh, once again, the voices that have helped shape the church oftentimes don't include those who are part of the disability community. One of the things that um, we see, and you can read this for yourself, um, on pages 145 and 146, is that um, Paul talks about in Hebrews or whoever, uh, let me back up and say whoever the writer of Hebrews is, I understand 
there's some contention about who wrote the book of Hebrews. That's neither here nor there. What what I do want to share is on page 146 um, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 13, where the writer of Hebrews says, Mark out a straight path for your feet, so that those who are weak and lame will not fall, but become strong. What the writer seems to suggest uh, is that there is a relay race when it comes to Christianity and that um, one of the one of the uh, goals is to mark out a straight path so that those who are weak and lame or those who are disabled <coughs> will not fall, but become strong. And I go on to say on page 146, clearing a straight path in this case means creating a new understanding of leadership in the local church. A quick, a quick glance at the Old Testament qualifications for service in the priesthood will show a number of restrictions related to disability. So, so what I'm going to do here is to address uh, some of the historical reasons why we don't see many people uh, with disabilities leading in the church. Um, earlier on um, in the book, we talk about... Um, different stories uh, of persons who um, ran into issues of being able to participate uh, in the local church. But some of that has a historical um, undergirding to it that I think is worth taking a look at. Uh, And so when you get a chance to read page 146, um, where we talk about some of the examples, uh, particularly in the book of Leviticus, that God gives instruction, that God gives uh, instructions to Moses about who can serve. And one of the reasons why it's so difficult to observe um, leaders with disabilities is because of some of the historical baggage that may have been misunderstood about uh, what seemed to be restrictions. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to read it in Leviticus 21, uh, 17 through 21. Read that um, as you go back and read or reread the book, because it's oftentimes very difficult for a person with a disability uh, to read. But but there's two things that I think that we need to pay attention to that are important to the subject of leadership. I say this on page 147. I believe two nuanced portions of this text have to be taken into consideration in order to make sense of it all. First, this instruction of Moses is found in a larger discussion about ceremonial or ritual ritual purity. Ceremonial purity is a spiritual concept, not a physical one. Perhaps the reason such a restriction seem unreasonable is because they are not meant to be viewed from an intellectual perspective. Dr. Susan Hedelman writes, And it is precisely because they, the Levitical purity laws, are such high spiritual level beyond what intellect can comprehend that they affect an elevated part of the soul, a part of the soul that transcends reason entirely. So what she's saying is is that um, we cannot necessarily read into those restrictions placed on persons with disabilities uh, to be in leadership as a purely physical uh, issue um, that God is not necessarily discriminating against them because of a physical limitation because ceremonial purity is a spiritual concept. It's not a physical one. And so 
we cannot then rationalize something on the level of our intellectual capacity when it was not meant to be understood intellectually. Uh, then I go on to say, um, page 147, secondly, God seems to make provision for the disabled by allowing them to eat the food that is brought as a sacrifice, a provision that is only given to priests and their families. This provision may mean that God did not exclude the disabled as it might appear. Jewish law recognizes that some Jews have physical and emotional limitations which prevent them from observing all biblical and rabbinical precepts, or in their case, uh, Old Testament um, laws. That's what I'm referring to when I say biblical. Uh, Jewish law exempts the disabled from any guilt they may, might feel because of their inability to perform certain commandments, thus affirming that the basic worth and spirituality of the disabled is not diminished in any way. Halacha urges them to achieve their fullest potential as Jews while exhorting society to assist them in making their religious observance possible. When we consider these two factors, it changes the way we view the relationship between spiritual leadership and disability. The challenge, however, is that if we have failed to consider the broader application of ritual purity, then we run the risk of subtly equating spiritual leadership with perfection, particularly physical perfection. I'm going to stop right there before I go on to read some more from page 148. Uh, but essentially, there's, there is historical baggage um, that seems to have been rooted in Scripture um, that sometimes has been used to justify the lack of uh, disabled persons in leadership because of what appears to be uh, restrictions placed on them in the book of Leviticus. However, a deeper studying of those un, of those um, seeming restrictions actually point to the fact that perhaps God is not discriminating against uh, disabled persons, but in a uh, strange sort of way is actually providing them with the relief from the guilt of not being able to fulfill the physical um, aspects of being considered a priest or a spiritual leader in the Old Testament. So really, you have to then understand it from the concept is that uh, particularly if, if, even as you look at how God made a provision for disabled persons to eat the food that is brought to the sacrifice, that was something that only the priests and their families could do, which suggests that God places them in a category spiritually that is equivalent to the priests with the understanding that there may be physical uh, or emotional limitations to them being able to fulfill all of the duties of the priesthood. And so what you see is you see God honoring them in a way that puts them on the level spiritually, even though they weren't able to um, conduct the rites and rituals that a priest would. What that suggests is, is that God is not actually condemning them or restricting them, but God is actually uh, in that set of restrictions, giving them uh, a measure of grace uh, that is to be understood that their physical or sometimes emotional limitations did not have any impact on their ability to provide spiritual leadership, which is why um, the only other uh exception that was made for people to eat the um, the food that was brought to be sacrificed were priests and persons with disabilities.
So God actually puts them on uh, the same level as the priests while giving them grace or sort of giving them an out from the guilt of not actually being able to perform um, the task. So it's not necessarily a restriction. Um, so I go on to say on page 148, with subconscious principles and practices such as these, it's no wonder that leadership in the church culture has taken on such unhealthy expectation. So again, if we look at uh, leadership from an aspect that is rooted in this um, false notion that there has to be a certain level of perfection, uh, particularly physical perfection in order for someone to be a priest or a leader, then we end up creating a culture that takes on unhealthy expectations. Again, page 148. Within the last several years, we have seen a number of heartbreaking accounts of church leaders who have resigned due either to moral failure or mental health issues. I believe we have created a culture where leadership in the church has become synonymous with perfection and our ideas of perfection have created pockets of pastoral pain in our congregations. It draws a distinction between worthy and unworthy, sacred and secular. Then I go on to say in the following paragraph uh, at the beginning, when disabled bodies are shoved into the category of being unworthy for service and leadership, they are in fact being defined as unholy not sacred enough to handle the task of leading the advancement of God's kingdom and nothing can be further from the truth. And so part of the historical baggage of why we don't see many leaders uh, who are disabled in the church comes from this false notion that somehow God requires a certain level of perfection in order to be leaders. And I think even broader than just uh, the disability and diversity issue, we've created a culture where we have unrealistic expectations of leaders, which has led to a tremendous amount of pressure um, for those who are leaders, but also it becomes a significant deterrent to those who may be called to help lead the church. And oftentimes you see that most played out when it comes to the disability community. Flip over to page 153 uh, as I begin to talk about the value of diverse leadership. Um, one of the things that we discover as I return back to the banquet uh, in Luke 14 is uh, found in a quote on page 153. Um, first full paragraph on page 153. One of the greatest benefits of intentionally bringing people with disabilities to to the leadership table in the church is the reorienting of the church's priorities. The banquet story communicates the reality that the banquet needs restructuring. The table needs to reprioritize. The invitation to the disability community, the poor and the marginalized is not just a moment of pity. The party host didn't ask for the servant to invite them just because he was angry. He instructed the servant to bring them because he became aware of the importance of their presence. So what we see even in Jesus teaching on the banquet the parable of the banquet is that um, inviting persons with disabilities into leadership helps the church to radically reprioritize itself to to actually return back to where I started in the book and that is that the church is born for inclusion but it's hard to keep that as a focus of the church uh, when we don't invite a diversity of voices to the table, particularly in this case, those who are disabled. In fact, one of the things that I talk about uh, in chapter seven in building a leadership culture is returning to the idea that the church was born for inclusion. And so I take an examination of 
uh, the opening day of the church in the book of Acts. And you can find sort of my summation of this in page 158, where I say, Peter, quoting from the prophet Joel, outlines the first work of the Holy Spirit in the church. The first expression of God's vision for the church was diversity. And so I break down um, Peter's quoting of the book of Joel to say there are basically four categories that the birth of the church addresses through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. One, uh, he talks about all generations, young men and old men, all genders, sons and daughters, all cultures and conditions when he says all flesh, and then all classes when he says servants and free. And so again, if you've read uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 15 through 18, uh, where Peter is quoting from the book of Joel, I believe, Joel chapter 2, verse 28. There's, there's four ways that God expresses the diversity of the church. He says, in the last days it will be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So again, in that prediction by both um, Joel and then uh, Peter uh, playing on the words of Joel, you find that God is bringing the church together, all generations, young men and old men, all genders, sons and daughters, all cultures and conditions, when he says all flesh, which includes those with disabilities who were often thought of as not worthy enough to lead and in some cases be a part of the church or the faith community and then all classes. And so what we see then is that there's a radical reinterpreting and radical reorienting of the priorities of the faith community to include those who were not often included, which includes persons who are on the margins because of their disability. Page 159, addressing the inconsistency between God's vision for the church and the vision we have for our local church is difficult because it is actually possible to have a growing church without any dedication to diversity and disability inclusion. So when we return back to the parable of the sower, if you remember, the last uh, section is um, the seed that hits the ground and Jesus says that it grows, but there are thorns that choke out the fruit. What's starting about this, picking up on that paragraph again, is that the seed will grow, but when the soil contains thorns, we all produce a large fruitless churches. All we produce are large fruitless churches and ministries. At some point, addressing the lack of disability leadership in the local church will be based solely on the choice to become more fruitful and not simply on an attempt to create more followers. So here's the struggle and why we struggle with becoming more disability inclusive is because we struggle with including uh, leadership and voices of those who are disabled to help shape the church and in the future of the church. But a large reason why that has become so difficult is, is because according to Jesus in that parable of the sower, it is possible for the seed to hit the ground for it to grow and to become large, but produce no fruit. And I think a large part of why it's going to be a challenge, particularly in the area of leadership, is because we have successfully, in a lot of ways, planted churches that have grown and become large, but they're not producing the type of fruit that God uh, would desire for them. 
uh, to produce. But because we have a lot of followers, we've settled for not producing a lot of fruit. So it's possible to have large, growing, thriving churches with lots of followers and very little fruit. And so the challenge for us then is to examine the reason why it's so difficult to become more disability inclusive and to include leaders with disabilities to help shape the church by switching off our affinity for followers and adjusting and reprioritizing our uh, our goal of the church to become more fruitful, not just have a bunch of followers. And that's going to be a challenge because we can grow a church and we can make it large and it can grow and we can gain lots of followers, but is it entirely possible to do that and produce very little fruit? So next episode, we'll jump into uh, chapter eight, uh, the final chapter of the book. Uh, and we'll touch a little bit on the conclusion of the book. Hey, listen, I thank you for joining me, uh, for tuning in to the Autism Pastor podcast. Remember, if you don't have the book, Disability in the Church, A Vision for Diversity and Inclusion, you can pick that up anywhere that books are sold. Um, you can pick it up on Amazon. You can also find it uh, through my publisher, Intervarsity Press. Listen, I don't take it for granted that you chose to spend your last several minutes with me. And so we are thankful for your time. If you're enjoying the content that we're producing on the Autism Pastor Podcast, make sure that you subscribe on wherever you uh, listen to your podcast. And also do me a huge favor and leave a review so that we can get this content out to more and more people. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Autism Pastor Podcast. Peace.